Welcome to Best Served, a podcast recognizing unsung hospitality heroes. Join Chef Jensen Cummings as he chops it up with industry leaders about the humans who've impacted their lives and careers. From childhood guides, to ass-kicking mentors, to the team members in the trenches that make it all happen. Help us celebrate these rock stars by sharing our show and nominating your own unsung hospitality heroes. Connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Now here is your host. What's up, everybody? Jensen Cummings here. Thank you for tuning in. Today I'm talking to Brandon Foster, exec chef at Project Angel Heart. Project Angel Heart is a Denver-based nonprofit delivering medically tailored meals to people living with life-threatening illnesses throughout Denver Metro and Colorado Springs. They are feeding over 1,200 people a day. That's right, 1,200 people every single day. Started his career at the age of 18 as a dishwasher at a Best Western in Dillon, Colorado. Dishwasher, exactly where I started my career, where most of us started our career. Now that we're professionals, been in a long time, owners, executive chefs, all we want to do is go back to washing dishes and keeping it simple, so I love that. Uh, funny little tidbits about the things that are always in your house because we want to know what's in your cupboards, what's in your fridge. And you said bourbon and emergency, and I love that. It's grandpa's cough medicine and then our kids' cough medicine. So I like the polarization uh, there. And then the most interesting little factoid that I had to have you tell us about, at one point you owned a tie-dye shop in Leadville, Colorado. Brandon Foster, welcome. Tell us about the tie-dye shop. How did you take this departure from culinary and, and, and live that hippie lifestyle in Leadville? Oh, man. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jensen, for the warm introduction. Um, you know, the, to be honest, the tie-dye shop was um, planned with about um, a quarter inch of forethought. And my then-girlfriend, now-wife, uh, and I were making quite literally making tie-dye t-shirts and sheets and everything we could find in our bathtub and then sneaking it to the laundromat and trying to get away with washing it there and running all that dye down the drain. So um, it was short-lived, but it was fun. Um, yeah, that's about the story. <laughs> Creative and entrepreneurial. And you said quarter inch. It, it feels like it might have been a, a quarter ounce of forethought. But that's a whole, that's a whole, other, a whole other story. <laughs> so brandon we like to play what we call best served on icebreakers okay. fun little game got to think about you a little bit the things that have been important to you and of course being with secret sauce we had to come up with a game called special sauce <laughs> being the sauce expert we're going to put you on the spot okay here we okay. go we're going to ask you a, a few questions about some sauces so this first one, it's a tough one, it's an open-ended one, but it is the foundation of a lot of the cooking that we got of that French technique. So what are the five mother sauces? Oh my gosh. Here we go. Here we go. Um, Hollandaise. Correct. Volute. Yes, sir. Ooh, Espanol. Bechamel. Oh, there's one more. Tomato. Boom. Yikes. Oh, that's embarrassing. That was, that was close. 
I'm glad nobody could see the squint on my face right there. That was close. <laughs> yes, sir. All right. A South American sauce of parsley, garlic, lemon, chili flake, dried oregano, and corn oil. Chimichurri. Yes, sir. I've heard some funny stories about chimichurri uh, that it actually didn't have a name, and there was uh, Brits that were in working with gauchos there uh, to bring beef to the UK, and they call every sauce curry, and they said, give me some curry, and they said chimichurri. I don't think that's true, but I like that story. <laughs> that's a good story. I like that nice. story. Yeah. All right. An Asian sauce, the Asian sauce of fermented soybeans, grains, brine, and aspergillus or azea, otherwise known as koji. What is that sauce? Ponzu? <laughs> Close. 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 A lot of times ponzu is mixed with this. Soy sauce. Oh. It's the OG sauce. Oh, the OG sauce. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I was great. If anybody's listening right now, I You're in trouble. Like, my chef card just got pulled right uh -huh. there. The all right, so now we're gonna go we're going all around the world because okay. that was something that was interesting with thinking about Vesta is how there was this feeling of Americana always, uh -huh. yet there was sauces from all over the world, yeah. regionally across the country, regionally across the globe. So an Indian regional sauce made of fruits or vegetables, vinegar, sugar, herbs, and spices. Served cold. Specific, uh, chutney? I mean, chutney, yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You're looking chutney. for a specific one? But yes, I would you like you to name uh, 10 different chutneys and their regions. Now, I could name you as many chutneys as we used to make at Vesta. I, <laughs> I bet. That's the thing about chutney. Everyone's yeah. got a different chutney. They look and yep, taste we had, we had completely different. Several. Yep. Yep. And now I just want to know, having made hundreds and hundreds of sauces, mm -hmm. you got to pick a favorite. What sauce or category of sauces just really speak to you? This is a tough one. This is like picking your favorite child, right? Yeah. This is a tough one. Yeah. Give us one that somebody's going to go, oh, man, i got to go get me some of that at Vesta. <laughs> well, boy. You know, I can, I can see the inner turmoil right uh -huh, now of having yeah, to try and pick hard. one. Just it is freestyle hard. a little bit. Flow I for us. What are a couple things that just, like, really speak to you? I mean, butter sauces. Like, I I love Beurre Blanc. I have for ever and ever. It's one of the first sauces I learned how to make at uh, the Best Western way back in the day. My first job. So that was, like... Um, you know, butter sauces, soubise, love, love making that. Um, but I think, God, I think probably my favorite sauce to make is like a, like a veal demi-glaze because just the process, the roasting the bones, the deglazing, the smell of roasted veal bones, I will always take me back to working at the four story and that was one of the first projects that they they made me do and you know because um you're talking three days oh yeah time and, effort. 
And we, yeah, we had a first wash and a second wash, and then we'd combine them, and we'd have about 60 gallons of liquid on the stove uh -huh. that we'd cook down to two. Demi-gloss and oh. then the Remy. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. The second wash. Mm -hmm. All right. Nerd, so, out, nerd out a little bit uh, with me. Tomato paste, yes or no, in the Demi? There's two schools there, right? There are two <laughs> schools. I preferred canned chopped tomatoes. Okay. Wine in your red Demi. Wine, yes. Okay. Uh -huh. yeah. There's some people, red or white, no wine. There's some people, tomato paste, other tomato product, no tomato whatsoever. Yep. And that's, that's what it is. It's that level of passion, commitment. It's seeing something take three days. And I talk now a lot about, I know I'm going to get some hate for this, but bone broth is just stock. <laughs> right? It's, it's, yep. it's being able to create that multi-day layers, pulling out all of that good nutrient and calcium out of mm -hmm. the bones, just having that rich oh, with you. I love, so I, I love it. We are salivating over here. Yep. I love it. It's We're, one of my favorite things. And we, you know, Tyler liked to serve the, um, he liked to do, I mean, boy, he taught me, we made every stock under the sun, man. And we would use um, a lot of you know, he would he would make veal demi and then reduce it and like steep it with like, you know, some garlic and maybe some like fresh thyme or just shallots and then serve it with like monkfish. Oh, we man. can talk sauces like, he for taught, hours. Yeah, he taught me, serve, you know, serving seafood with a meat sauce like that. Boy, oh boy. Yeah, I could. Yeah. Love me, love me some demi. <laughs> this, this is our kind of game. Thank you for playing. So I want to go through, you started at 18 as a dishwasher, looking for a job, but I know for you, it started a lot earlier. Talk to me about that first spark of inspiration, that first spark of inspiration, excuse me, that kicked you into this, this crazy industry that, that we call cooking. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the summer between my freshman and sophomore year um, in high school, uh, my family and I moved from Pennsylvania to um, era to Tucson, Arizona, and um, I've always had. I was born in Denver and always had family and friends, grandparents, and relatives here. And during that transition and move, I um, spent a couple of weeks <clears throat> here in Denver with my grandparents, um, and had an opportunity to spend a, a day in the kitchen with my aunt Jane. Um, her name is Jane Berryman, and she was a chef here in Denver. Um, at the time, it was a, at a restaurant. It was kind of an Italian restaurant market. It was called Cucina Leone, um, and it had re just recently opened, um, and I got to go hang out with her and make pizza and make pizza in an 800-degree oven, and it's the first time I ever put a chef coat on, and um, you know, I was so excited about it. I had the greatest time. It was, you know, for years after after that, I would make that pizza at home with my family. And, um, you know, I'll never forget at the end of the day, um, end of my time there, I was like, wow, this was so much fun. You know, I really enjoyed this. Like, I'd love to do this. And she was like, do me a favor. Whatever you do, don't get into this business. Don't get into this industry. You'll work like crazy hours and you won't ever get time off and you won't make any money. And I remember feeling a little like she was really kind of <clears throat> blunt about it, you know, and I, I remember feeling a little like, oh, man, I had just had so much fun. But 
um, you know, I don't think I really realized at the time um, how much it and how much it did have an effect on me. And it, it took a few years getting through high school and and uh, a, a failed year of college at, <clears throat> at the University of Arizona to. Um, you know, for me to really figure out that uh, cooking was what I wanted to do. So, um, uh -huh. always been a, she has always been a voice of inspiration and guidance in my career over the years. Um, we've ta we talk on the phone, she sends me messages, she keeps up and keeps tabs on what I'm doing and checks in with me and makes sure I'm doing okay. And um, yeah, she has definitely been one of my unsung heroes along the way, so. Yeah, so I want to I want to go back and touch on how she said, "What the fuck are you thinking? Don't fall <laughs> don't fall in love with cooking, not with being in in a restaurant." And this is a very interesting thing I hear a lot because there's a lot of you're working at a restaurant, cool. When are you going to get a real job? And for me, I was always pretty grateful that my family's been doing this for five generations, 120 years. We've had restaurants and been cooking, and you know we're gluttons for punishment because I never asked, when are you gonna get a real job? So you kind of early on had that, where you're like, well, you're in it, I'm inspired by it, but you're telling me not to be in it. And that, and that's a, and that can be pretty polarizing. So, so talk to yeah. me about that, like what did it take to kind of overcome that when you have somebody that you're looking up to telling you not to? Sure, you know, um, you know, I think, I mean, I think ultimately, um, I don't know, along the way, I think she probably saw that in me somewhere. Um, she probably knew that, like, if that was something that I enjoyed, that that was something I was going to I was going to go forward with. I mean, that is one thing I will say is like since that day that I spent with her making pizza, like she never really that was probably the only discouraging word that she gave me um, about it. And I think likely because I was a freshman in high school, almost a sophomore and as impressionable as anybody. And, um, you know, I think at the time, the, like the, the, there was definitely that, I think there was a fair amount of reality to what she had to say in the business and, um, but from the moment I started, she has always been, I mean, she's been nothing but supportive and has always come to eat everywhere that I've worked. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of been, it was kind of, you know, <clears throat> I don't know if it was tough love or, um, but it definitely didn't discourage me that much. So um, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Aunt Jane. Like, yeah, yeah. We we all need more Aunt Jane. She was realistic. You know, she was giving you the truth, yeah. saying go in eyes open. She yes. inspired you, and then continue to encourage. Like we we all need those things. There's plenty of people that judge us and put us down and tell us we can't. We don't need that. There yeah. are also people that, you know, just give you unfettered support and sometimes you're like well wait i need a little bit of grounding so aunt jane sounds like the perfect model for for what you need in an early uh, inspiration so thank you aunt jane i'm yeah, sure yeah. aunt jane is listening right now i hope so right so then you're in it 
you're working in the restaurant industry. Uh, you know, I know you go to culinary school because you think that that's the path. And then you have a moment of reflection. Tell me about that moment and who was there in that moment that kind of really puts you on the path to being, you know, a, a chef with some skills, some notoriety, and, and, and quite a career to this point. Sure, sure. Um, so I spent, yeah, five years working. Um, I started as a dishwasher at the Best Western, and I worked there for five years, and I moved to Denver. Um, I left there as the sous chef, um, and I moved to Denver, to, like you said, thinking culinary school was the end-all, be-all. And um, uh, per, to be perfectly honest, I've had my up and down views of it over the years. Um, I, I, when I moved to Denver, I spent the summer, I was lucky enough to get an interview um, with Tyler Wired, who at the time was the executive chef at the Four Story restaurant, which is sadly no longer here. Maybe some of, some of our listeners don't don't remember that hopefully you do um it was an iconic restaurant here in denver for a while and um i was super fortunate to to be able to be there um i got in that kitchen um he and his sous chef michelle leslie i mean i i tasted my first bite of foie gras my first ramp my first morel mushroom my first heirloom tomato um all these things i you know as a kid, anybody who knew me as a kid, anyone in my family would tell you I was the pickiest of the picky when it came to eating growing up. And, um, and I was thrust into this kitchen and, you know, when, you know, the six, five, you know, 200 pound saute chef who's sweating, pouring down his face, turns around and has a bite of foie and a morel mushroom and a spoon. It says here, eat this. Like, you just don't say no. And I don't like mushrooms. And so, you know, there were things that it just opened my eyes to a world of food, um, a style of cooking um, that I just quite frankly, didn't even know existed. And um, it definitely solidified like this is, this is the place I, I need to be. And I ultimately, you know, had to make a decision between um, the time I needed for culinary school and the time I needed to commit to that restaurant. And um, in the end, I chose the restaurant. Um, it was a difficult decision. Um, I still, at this point in my career, stand by it 110%. Um, not because I hold any ill will towards Johnson & Wales or culinary school, quite, quite the opposite. Um, but for me and my career at that point in my life, that was what was best for me. And, um, yeah, just can't say how fortunate enough I was to have been able to be in that kitchen at that time. Um, it was for the last, you know, sort of nine months to a year that he was there. And then I had the great fortune of moving over to Mel's bar and grill for the second, for his second stint there as the executive chef and got to stay with him, um, there and was really, I mean, yeah, he just taught me so much about food and how to be creative and um and technique and it was it was an incredible experience so yeah we're talking real like you said iconic iconic you know establishments and and chefs of those days i mean fourth yeah. story rattlesnake metals yeah yes. like these were you know aubergine zenith these are like the restaurants that 
we just don't know about today that really established even the opportunity for chefs like you and I to help continue to evolve to kind of the modern Denver that it is now. And yeah, wow, Tyler, what a huge impact he had and Mel himself had uh, on, on the scene as a whole, or Tyler, you know, Tyler Wired and Frank Bonanno being co-chefs together yeah. back in the day. These, these, uh, these laid the groundwork. I mean, the family tree of chefs, you know, Chris Cena was, was part of those crews back then. There's a lot of guys that came out of that. It's like a coaching tree in football. So big time. Uh, yeah. I often and, think could build a, uh, you know, there's the six degrees of Kevin Bacon game and Hollywood <laughs> movies. I feel, feel like something could be created about Mel Master and the Denver restaurant scene. And I'm pretty sure you could connect just about everybody to him through six different degrees. So it's pretty, you know, I've definitely so fortunate to have just been able to step into this community at the time that I did. Yeah. And having uh, worked alongside Tyler at, at many events and uh, charity events, things like that, he is an intense dude, has an yeah. absolute love and passion. So I'm interested, we're going to talk about kind of the next phase of your career because you are very different. You are very, you are very chill. You're in a totally different space. So uh, that had to be a dynamic experience for you of that intensity. And then you being so humble and just like cerebral and things like that. Now on the thread of being cerebral and thoughtful, I wanted to detour real quick. It's something you and I discussed several times and that is the notion of family meal i'm fascinated with how that can affect culture and i know it's something that's been paramount for you at vested dip and grill and also something that's ebbed and flowed for you so can you talk a little bit about family meal and why it has the potential to have a major impact on culture kind of where it was when you started and how you evolved it at vesta First started there it used to be like one person's responsibility and then we it sort of we sort of grew it to um, you know incorporating um, everybody on every station and starting to compile a recipe book and a go-to um, it still was like the grill person's responsibility but then he would you know delegate out what parts of it needed to be done and um, you know I think I personally struggled over the years there with getting, it was something I would try to stress the importance of with cooks. You know, I think as, as a young line cook, it's easy to get caught up in like um, your need to um, get your station set up on time and have chef not breathing down your neck about that. And, you know, often family meal is the first thing that goes by the wayside and something that you know is left to be the last thing done and so yeah so that was something it was kind of a challenge off and on there um but you know we would still like there was still a minute before service every day maybe it was a little bit longer than others um to sit down and eat and chat it up with each other and take a break um you know one thing that we did 
particularly with family meals there is on days we try to recognize days throughout the year where that were particularly heavy workloads on the cooks and we would either order in staff meal or maybe often you know Josh would bring down green chili cheeseburgers from Steubens or something like that um, one really cool thing that we got into for a while was difficult to sustain long term but was doing um, staff meal swaps with Steubens so like once a month we would we would make a staff meal and they would make it make a staff meal and then one of us would drive up there and we'd swap them out and then we get to eat the other person's food once a month and that was fun we had a lot of fun with that and um, people really enjoyed that so I think this you know um, I think in the in the day-to-day -day hustle it's something that is can can get brushed off but it shouldn't it's important and it's important to like take that time and recognize that like yeah, slow down we all slow down we all have a job to do but like we're all people and let's just like yeah. hang out for 10 minutes and scarf down some food and and yeah break bread i mean yep, yep. eating together is the experience that you're creating for your guests yep. to create it for yourselves connects you to them in that experience as well yep and you're about to get your fucking teeth kicked in. Yep. Take mm -hmm. take a second. Your meese, will, yep. you'll still be behind in five minutes. Yep. No more behind, but you'll have just a sense of calm and peace, which I think is, is great. So we're talking about food now. Talking about some of the line cooks. Let's get into Matt Selby. Yeah. Somebody that, I mean, had what an influence on you, what an influence on the Denver food scene. Uh, give us some of the, the Matty-isms. Yeah, definitely, you know. There's a lot of them. There are, man, there are. You know, I think, um, I mean, gosh, constant fun. Like, you know, it was always a good time in the kitchen with Maddie, and I loved, I loved that. There was, even in the chaos, there was a certain, like, um, there was a certain light, heartedness about his approach that like even when he was serious he was still you know um yeah he was just he was still kind of level-headed enough to like keep everybody from you know it was like oh my gosh i'm getting worked i'm getting worked i'm getting worked and he'd be over there like cracking jokes on the expo line with fucking hands full of tickets and like like okay we're good we're good. I'm good. Keep going. Like if he's good, I'm good. Just keep it going. And that, you know, um, ultimately learning those things from him, you know, he gave me my first real opportunity to start putting food on a plate. And, you know, as a line cook, he encouraged line cooks to do specials. And there was a process of like, Hey, I want to do a special. Okay. Let's talk about what you want to do. And he would, you know, talk you through every, every part of it and you had to cost it out and you you know it was like it was um unheard of for a line cook yeah what does that mean for a line cook to be able to have that level of potential freedom right you had to earn yeah. it a little bit yeah. for sure with costing it and yep. putting it together and having a plan not yep. just slopping shit on a plate yep well, what does that mean what does that represent that level of trust and confidence to say hey you too can be a fucking chef yeah like, what does that mean like how do you how do you put words to that level of of opportunity you can't you can't really man no i just was so i mean 
yeah, I just was so thrilled with it. I would, you know, um, and I mean, yeah, it was it was really it was eye opening for me, you know. And there and there was like, you know, Maddie cooks. Anybody who's tasted Maddie's food, you know. Maddie's food is incredibly bold and flavorful. And if you're going to call something a certain thing, like it better be there. And that was like the first thing that I learned. Like I did this sea bass special with the cilantro vinaigrette and it was like a broken vinaigrette, right? It was like cilantro oil with a little sherry vinegar like floating on the top of it. And they were like, nope. Servers were like, nope, not having it. Sold two, was like, yeah, back a little, to the little humble board. pie. Oh, without right, a doubt. All right. Without a doubt. And that was, but that was the process, mm. you know, and that was one thing too. He was like, look, I'm going to, I'm going to like talk you through all of this. You have to understand that like, you know, the food has to fit a certain style because while we and everybody at the table and everybody on the staff here knows that it's your special, everybody out in the dining room thinks it's my special. And so I'm not saying I'm going to take it over, but I'm just saying that you need to keep that in mind when you're putting, you know, when you're putting ingredients together. It has to be something that like makes sense for what we're doing and what we do. And, and, and yeah, I mean, that was like, I mean, just incredibly valuable. I was so lucky, man. Incredibly valuable lessons. And, you know, becoming a sous chef and learning, you know, I was a, I did every position at Vesta. I was a morning prep cook there, I was a line cook. And when I got promoted to sous chef, it was right around the time that the first Steubens opened. And my opportunities, you know, I had been there for long enough to be like, there were things I wanted to, to change and things I wanted to alter now that I had a sous chef position and had a, you know, had a voice in the conversation. It was not my say by any means, but I now had a voice in the conversation a little more and I was, and you know, things would just like, gosh, the, you know, I would just end up like getting, I had this whole list of stuff and I would end up just kind of like barking shit at people all day and I'll, you know. Yeah, talk about that a little bit more because oh. I know Maddie talks about early on where he was an angry chef mm -hmm. and he's really, really, pot committed on the kindness mm -hmm. is everything yeah and uh you talked about him breaking the tension i think is what it is so yeah like for sure everyone at ease but still having that intensity that focus mm -hmm. which was really important and i know you know early on when you come up i fucked up a bunch where it's like you're lucky to be working for me and i'm gonna be so intense because i can't let anything go wrong you you're holding on too tight yeah right Talk a little bit about that, how you worked your way through that and how Maddie really guided you and yeah. pushed you. Yeah, he, um, you know, there was one night in particular I remember where um, I was cleaning the walk-in. It was a Friday or Saturday night, super busy, end of the night, like 10.30, 11 o'clock. I'm cleaning up in the walk-in. Line cooks are cleaning their stations. And I... You know, walk-in's a disaster, and I'm just, like, super annoyed. The OCD family. kicks in Oh, my God. Hard. And there's, you know, the heavy cream is up in the corner, and there's, like, six, four cartons or whatever that are all open and all have partials. And 
I just came out of the walk-in and just laid into everybody. What the fuck? Why can't we like, why is it so hard to just grab the open one? Like, I know you're busy, but for fuck, you know, and, um, but it was definitely not calm like that in any way. And, you know, I went back into the walk-in. He was on the expo line and I went in back into the walk-in. It was very much like, come out, yell a bunch of shit, go back in there. Oh, I'm pissed. So (laughs) he comes into the walk-in and he's like, man, he's like, did you see the faces on those guys out there? And I'm like, just blinded by rage. I'm like, no, why? (laughs) And he's like, dude, like, I'm not saying this to make you mad. I'm just telling you, like, they don't give a fuck what you just said. They couldn't care less about that cream. Like, they just got their shit rocked for five hours straight. And, like, the last thing they care about is how much cream is in the walk-in. Like, and you, you throwing to, a tantrum. Yes, and you throwing a tantrum about, about it, you know. And, and the message was, like, you have to, you have to start coming up with solutions and not just problems. We can all look around and talk about what's wrong and what's fucked up and what's not getting done right. But how do you fix it? Right. And that's like the evolution, right? Of like line cook to sous chef. Line cooks, you go out after work and you fucking piss and moan about all the shit that's wrong and all the shit, right? Venting, blowing off steam. And when you're ready to take that next step, solve the problem so that you can avoid having to piss and moan about it after work, you know? Um, and ultimately, that's what helped me get past those little things because when you, when I started to try to approach, problems of like okay stop complaining try to figure out how to fix it when you shift like that it automatically like makes you not as angry because you're trying to solve a problem instead of just complain about what's wrong you're not dwelling on the thing that happened you address it yep you address Mm -hmm. it absolutely you find the opportunity where that's a teachable moment correct versus a moment for you to inflict your will on people correct and i got the same support from um jeff bustos was the general manager at vesta at the time um and same thing like i can remember like he would come you know he would come back, I'd be bailing out the pantry guy and he'd look through the window at me and I'd be like, what the fuck's going on out there, man? They just rang in like all this shit at once and blah, 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 blah. And he'd just like. Stare you down. He'd just kind of stare at me, yeah. He didn't have to say anything. I'd be like. (sighs) Heard, we chef. Heard, right? And yeah, and that was his message to me too. was like, look, man, like what good does that do you? You know, he was like, what good does that do you to just to just bitch at me in the window about it. Like, if you want to talk about how to fix this problem, then when you get through the rush, then come talk to me and let's have a reasonable conversation about it and let's solve the problem. And, you know, and that method came from the top. That came from Josh that, you know, Maddie backed that up, Jeff backed that up, and, you know, the message was, and again, going back to being so lucky, like so lucky to have an owner and a chef and a general manager with a unified message and a unified direction. And like, this is how you need to handle this. That's, that's the game right there. You're hitting on gold because Mm -hmm. culture is top down. Mm -hmm. 
and that unified message. It's just like when you're a kid, your parents are divided. Oh, you're going to pit them against each other. Sure. You know, and if they're unified, if they're on the same page, just like that leadership is important. Attitude reflects leadership. Yep. Uh, that message got through. I know because I didn't know you in those days, but I've known you for 10 years now. Mm-hmm. And your energy is always palpable. You're the fucking happiest guy in the room, man, <laughs> even when you're getting your head kicked in. And having talked to friends of ours like John Wallace, right, who yeah. you know I worked with when I was 18 years old, and I remember him saying at one point he'd been working AM Sue-type supervisor role for Vesta for yep. some couple of years, mm-hmm. and says to me, I would work for Brandon and Vesta for the rest of my life. you know, And that hit me. Because John is a curmudgeonly little yeah. little guy, right? And uh, he just had that attitude. How did your then leadership, you took the reins, you were able to kind of become your own chef. How then did you take that and, and pass that along and keep that tradition of unified message, of culture, of not being an asshole? Right. And, and pass that on to, to your team. You know, I think I just... Um, you know, after I kind of got through the initial um, sort of honeymoon period of, or the, not honeymoon, I shouldn't say that, the, the like breaking in period of being a sous chef is not a honeymoon by any means. Um, once I started to feel, you know, a little more comfortable in that role and where, where my influence was with the team you know at the time i was like the sous chef who was working the line on like i was the second guy on the middle plating food on the busy nights coming in and bailing people out and um i really worked hard at balancing what i wanted with what I thought the cooks wanted. There were often times throughout my line cooking career where I felt like um, my voice wasn't being heard on certain things. And so I always tried to um, make sure that people felt that they were heard, that their concerns were genuinely taken into account. as busy as I was, I always tried to be like, look, I'm never too busy to talk about shit. If you have, if you're having something on your mind, you want to talk through something, whether it's personal or work or whatever, um, you know, I'm here and I'm never too busy to, you know, my door's always open. I'm never too busy to, to sit down and talk. And to this day, I still, still say that to people because that, you know, I, draw a lot from what I wanted out of a chef as a line cook. And so I've tried to emulate the things that I wanted out of a chef um, as a line cook. And, That's really good. It's yeah. hard to reflect and sometimes you forget Yeah. and you romanticize the way that you were, but you're like, yeah. I was exactly like yeah. they are now. Yes. And now I'm being like, I didn't want to be treated then. So Right. And coming with also some eye-opening things of like, you know, um, like as a chef, there's so much of your, you know, especially with Vesta, it was dinner only. Like, 
we would come in in the morning and by the time the line like line cooks would come in we've been there for five six seven hours like i could have already had like a total shithole day before anyone even shows up and like nobody knows that but also like in, in some ways, nobody cares, right? Like, you don't want to be the guy that, like, the line cooks walk in, and you're like, oh, I've already had a fucking shit day today. Like, they don't want to hear that. They're just rolling in for their shift of work. Like, you know, and that was a hard thing because as a line cook, you're like, you know, like, what do these guys do all day? <laughs> Jeez, I'm over here but barely getting my station set up, and they're, like, talking it up with the front of the house, and it's like, that transition and seeing both sides and seeing the, the sous chef side of it and the legitimacy of some of those times and knowing that there's you know there's time where your work so much of your work goes on outside of the eyes of most of your staff and sometimes when you're buried in the shits that's a hard thing to like it's easy that's why you you get those divisions where it's yeah management line level mm -hmm. morning guys night guys front of house back of house bartenders servers because we are not able to empathize you mentioned empathy yeah. and, and trying to to have that a little bit of that eq yeah to be able to say okay i i hear you yeah and communication and trust i think is is key in that so you yeah. built a team uh, there's countless people i know that would be those people that are just the backbone and you've mentioned quite a few people that were there alongside you. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we're sticking with Vista. Vesta, excuse me. Tell me your unsung hospitality hero. I know there's somebody that, when I asked you that question, you said, "I know a guy that is just needs the attention because they're a fucking badass." So yeah. Talk to me about your unsung hospitality hero. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. <laughs> I actually have I, I need to include one other person just briefly at the beginning of this when I was thinking about it um, Stephen Cox is the current chef de cuisine at Vesta and I hired him as a culinary intern from Johnson & Wales and he's been there for almost 11 years and he's the chef de cuisine um, so I'm pretty proud of that and pretty proud of him for everything that he's accomplished and what what he's done and how how far he's gotten um, he quietly keeps that place going day to day and he should be he should be recognized for that um, one of the people on his team um, is his name is Daniel Lee and he um, was is recently promoted to a sous chef position there and um, he was also a culinary intern. Uh, we did his, he did his internship with me um, at Vesta. We hired him on full time. He had to leave for a period of time and go home and deal with some family stuff. He came back to Denver. He could jump back on the staff right away. Um, he's been there ever since. And he has some of that desire and that like I see some of me in him in that like he's willing to put in the extra time he's willing to do this and do that and he just wants to create food he's just totally into it he thinks it's so cool he goes home at night and thinks about how to fucking plate food in cool different ways and and 
all that stuff is just, it, I see a lot of, of him and me and something else that I think is really cool that he's doing in a way that I continued to, to support him um, is he started a kimchi business. Um, it's called Centennial Culture Company and he's currently using uses a little bit of our space here, Project Angel Heart, for uh, commissary work and does his prep and all his fermenting and stores all of his kimchi here. So, um, you know, he reached out to me nine months or so ago um, looking for um, a place to try to get this started while he secures his own um, more permanent commissary space. So um, I was happy that he reached out and I'm happy you know, to help provide that connection. I think um, it's cool to be able to not be at Vesta and not be in that restaurant every day and still support. Um, you know, they still are incredible supporters of ours. I just saw Josh's wife, Jen, in with a couple of the staff on Friday last week. Um, to do meal delivery. They come in periodically and do group volunteer work here. Um, that support means more than they could possibly know. Um, it's really, really awesome. So yeah, Daniel, um, he's killing it. Everybody should know about Centennial Culture Company. Um, you can get his kimchi up at Ace Eat Serve. They're serving it up there right now. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty cool stuff, so. I love it. We need more Stephen Cox, more Daniel Lee. Yeah in this industry we need more brandon foster matt selby josh wilkins <laughs> supporting them tyler wired aunt jane some serious people have been along your journey because i think the most interesting people have been impacted by the most interesting people which i think is great Agreed. i want to leave us with a quote that you gave me so that we can take out in the world try and make it a better place you say make a thousand mistakes once don't make the same one twice Never stop learning and never stop fine-tuning your craft. It's okay not to be okay. What does that mean to you? Um, so those are kind of like, I guess, three somewhat separate statements, but all things It's that, more of a mantra. It, yes, more of a mantra. Um, a thousand mistakes once, don't make the same one twice. I've been saying that to, to cooks for years. Um, when you're growing up and you're coming up in the business, you know, that was something that Tyler Wired told me. Like, dude, I know you're gonna fuck up. I know it. What I want you to do is, is learn from that mistake. Um, you know, I plan on you fucking up, that's fine. But what I don't plan on you doing is doing the same thing over and over again, like that. And so that's where that message comes from. Um, Never stop learning, never stop fine-tuning your craft. Um, you know, when I would do performance reviews and knife skills would be performance part of performance review, like nobody ever got a perfect score on knife skills because you know what, you're never, you're never perfect at knife skills. And I, to this day, am still working on my knife skills. So um, I just think it's kind of a humble approach to this business. Like there is just so much in the food world and so much to learn, so much to tackle. I think the moment that you think you've learned it all is the moment that it's time for you to get out. If you're not getting um, better, you're getting worse. Correct, correct. Um, and then it's okay to not be okay. Um, yeah, you know, there's a, been a lot of focus on mental health in our industry um, as of late and 
Probably still not enough, but there's a move, movement towards it, right? Correct, correct. Um, I'll take an opportunity to give a shout out to John Hinman and Alex Palmerton at Chow, uh, Colorado Hospitality, Hospitality Outreach and Wellness. Um, look them up if you need some support, if you need somebody to talk to. They meet every Monday night, um, and that's just a place to go and talk with people about what's going on um, in the industry. It's a tough gig, and it's a tough... Um, yeah, it's a tough profession, and for many, many years, it thrived on your, you know, the more you could act like nothing bothered you, the better off you were. And it's a pretty destructive way to go through your career. And so um, I had points over my career where I felt like I pushed myself harder than I needed to and could have taken more time to take care of myself than I did. Um, and so, yeah, I just try to, to implore that to anybody, like, it is okay to not be okay and to, to ask for help and to need help, so. Words of wisdom. You brought a lot of value to the people listening at every level of the industry because they all matter. We need to keep celebrating everybody within the industry. That's right. Thank you for talking with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. You've been listening to... A lot of high energy from a man, Brandon Foster. He is all exuberance all the time. That's what we love about him. We heard a lot about the great people who have impacted him throughout his journey. And he specifically gave a nice shout out to Daniel Lee, who's a sous chef at Vesta currently. And they work together when uh, Brandon was the chef there. Daniel, thanks for talking with us, man. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, I actually started out um, in this industry, I just thought going to culinary school would be a good idea, even though I had no experience prior to culinary school. Um, I kind of grew, grew up just um, just cooking for my brother. When um, our parents split up, we had like a division of labor. He was my older brother, so he took care of everything else, and I just made sure he was fed. And where so were you guys growing tried, up? Um, we're originally from Baltimore, Maryland over on the East Coast. And after high school, I came straight out here as soon as I got accepted to Johnson Wales in Denver and actually started at Vesta, which is my first, my first job in the industry actually as, a, as an internship program. Yeah, I think you mentioned that. So, so you've been at Vesta, the, your whole professional career has been at Vesta. How many years has that been? I think it's almost five years now. All right. Well, something's got to be yeah. working if, if you're sticking with. Absolutely. Like, um, yeah, and Foster was the one who hired me. Uh, he had to deal with my very uh, flaky nature. I remember as an extern, um, I didn't really understand how it works at that point. And I kept, like, calling in sick and like not not doing really my part as I believe I should have but he ended up hiring me and it was probably the greatest thing that happened to me because I learned exponentially way more than I did in culinary school uh, how to work with people how an actual um, restaurant runs and and like we talk about the unsung heroes of a restaurant, who's important, who you got to take care of the most. Um, I like to think 
the dishwashers are the unsung heroes of a restaurant because there's been days where we have no dishwasher and everything just falls apart. <laughs> that is the number one most important person in the restaurant. I talk about that a lot. Their work Absolutely. touches touches every guest. I agree. Yeah, I think it's I think it's great. So I think that's important. You got a couple of dishwashers, Pastor Current, that you want to give a shout out to. That I love hearing about dishwashers. Um. Yeah. There's there's a few. Um. There's one. Uh, I actually never learned his real name, but at at Vesta we called him Funda. And even though there's a huge language barrier, um. I don't know. I just had a really funny, like, cool relationship with him. Like every day, we just kind of like fed off of each other's energy, and like it made working there a lot fun. And as a young extern, he was one of the the dudes who would just just yell at me for putting dishes in there not correctly, or like kind of find the right way to not piss him off with how, where I put dishes and organizing and all that. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's great. They're holding you accountable. What's interesting is sometimes we think, oh, it's just dirty dishes. It's a dish pit, but that's their line, right? Like, <laughs> right. That's their right. that's their mise en place. That's how they're setting up their world, and they're going to take it very very seriously. So I can always appreciate it. And I think yeah. it's interesting you said the language barrier because in a kitchen we know it's all about communication, which doesn't always include language. So sometimes exactly. understanding how to communicate with somebody beyond a language barrier is such a crucial skill. So I love that you brought it up because people can kind of learn from that. So I want to know, you know, you mentioned being a little bit flaky and, and we know that from, from culinary school and, and there's a love hate relationship that Brandon touches on about culinary school itself. And Absolutely. what, when and how do you say, okay, now I'm really starting to get it. And what are those little key insights and words of wisdom and kicking the ass that that Brandon gave you to really make it crystallize for you that this is where you were meant to be. Yeah, I remember the the last time I ever called in, um he just gave me a very stern talking to. It was like um it's like, "Hey buddy, uh I just want you to realize when you do this, you make everyone ex like work extra hard to fill in that position and it like that was not a good feeling, you know making other people suffer from you know me being lazy or not having the the drive to like suck it up and just show up you know what i mean and um it was stuff like that and that's when i realized i i gotta like kind of toughen up a little bit and have a little more structure to my life prior prioritize going to work over my own like i don't know it's like being like eh, I don't want to I don't want to get out of bed or I don't want to go to work like it kind of eliminated that attitude yeah I think that's great you recognize that it's about the team and that you can push yourself just a little bit harder and building that trust and confidence in both directions I think is super important so I love that you're touching on that being open about the fact that you know you weren't where you were supposed to be you weren't where you wanted to be but somebody like Brandon yeah, and the dishwasher Fundu holding you accountable, like made it worthwhile for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, like Foster really helped me become a lot more selfless and like put other people before myself because I'm I'm like one of the the youngest guys there, so I have the most energy to expend. So 
they're, they're counting on you. I don't know if you have more energy than Brandon Foster. That's pretty tough. That guy uh, goes a million miles an hour for sure. I, I yeah, yeah. I love and, his energy. Uh, that was a huge influence on me. Like now that I just recently became a sous chef, I like to model my leadership styles after Foster because he's the type of person when you just walk in the restaurant, he'll just start banging on tables and just yelling your name, be like, Daniel, and like banging on stuff. And like the entire kitchen would follow. And the five seconds you walk in, you're just like, oh, like I'm in a great mood now. Talk more about that, the leadership style. What are you um, taking into your, into your repertoire, specifically from Brandon, and then evolving it yourself? Um, just really making sure everyone's all right. Like, keeping the energy levels super high. Like, finding out what, like, the little things you could do for someone so they can focus on, like, bigger projects or, like, making sure their life outside of work is cool, too. Because he would always ask, like, how you doing? Like, what's new? And all that stuff and being very personable to uh, everyone on the line. Yeah, the relationship as a whole, super important. Yeah, and like uh, was, you're about to get your head kicked in for five hours. You better have right. some some emotional stability and support. Otherwise, it gets dark and tough. Absolutely, and like at the end of the day, like you know, we're there to get a job done. But what I kind of took from Foster is like, if you take care of your people, like most of the time, everything will take care of itself. So he was really excited to talk exactly about a lot of those things about his quote was, you know, part of it was it's okay to not be okay. And, and I think he was just excited that it can be troublesome and hard in our industry. And there's a lot of challenges and, and some of the culture at times has been and can be toxic, but that, that checking in was, was important. So it's really good to hear that that has transferred, to you and that you're taking up that mantle because I think that's important. That means that it's not just lip service. That means it's fundamental right. in the way that you guys are running your kitchen. So it's absolutely yeah. great to hear that. Now there's another part of, of something he said that I thought was, was really cool. It's these like us old guys now in the industry, we talk about these like proud Papa moments where, you know, he got to support you as you kind of side hustle <laughs> a little bit and are getting into fermentation and and kimchi specifically and that he got to offer up some of his space there at project angel heart for you to use as you kind Mm -hmm. of were trying to navigate starting that so talk about specifically what you are doing and more importantly what it's meant to have kind of foster there once again even though you're not working together to once again be a support mechanism for you right um I don't know. It's just like, it really is a great feeling. It can, it's like one of those like full circle moments where before I started using Project Angel Art as a commissary kitchen, um, I was just kind of finding any space I can to make kimchi. And it was very stressful because like the lack of space or like getting in other people's way. But after reaching out to Brandon Foster, um, he made love a hundred times easier for us not only like the huge kitchen from project angel heart but also the energy in that place like 
everyone's just so welcoming, so nice. And also the people, the volunteers that come in, they're always so interested, like, who are those guys? And like, we get to talk about our business and just talk about our love of like probiotic foods, lacto-fermentation, all that. And it's just a, it's just all really nice. <laughs> Why kimchi for you? For me, it started out as a little fun project between me and my current partner. Um, one day we were just like, hey, like, do you want to make a huge batch of kimchi? Like, it's hard to find the right kimchi for us because we're quite picky growing up with grandma. Like, you know, everyone says their grandma makes the best kimchi or like that. But it's hard to find that out here. So we decided to make our own kimchi. And then one night we stayed up all night just prepping kimchi. And in the morning we would hike up St. Mary's Glacier and bury it for three weeks. And we just thought it was a really cool idea. Like just like burying kimchi in a mountain, just like old, like Buddhist monks would back in the day. And it just started from there. And like, we realized a lot of restaurants, like we would go out and eat. And it's like, ah, oh, this kimchi is not that great. And like, I'm, I bet we could make better kimchi. And also, it's like a really small market. So, so why not capitalize on that and try to be the kimchi guys of Denver? <laughs> it's great. Yeah. Uh, as a fermentation nerd myself, I am all about it. Uh, your partner and your company, tell us a little bit about um those two so my partner um he's actually i grew up with him in maryland we went to i've known him since we were like 11 years old like middle school through high school and then i came out here for culinary school while he was in school in maryland but uh he actually just moved um a year and a half ago out to denver so we could start this thing because we've always dreamed about having um, our own restaurant, ghost kitchen, food truck, things like that. We've always just wanted to do something with food. And he's, to me, he's like an entrepreneurial genius. He's got a really good business mindset. So he's like the administrative like number side where I'm like the creative, I get to play with food and like the chef side of that. Yeah, what's his name? What's the name of your company? Drop those oh, for everyone um, listening. Oh, yeah, yeah. His name is uh, Matt Jung. And the company is Centennial Culture Co. We started in November 2018. That's and, great. Yeah. I love to hear that. So that entrepreneurial hustle, you got the leadership crystallized in you from Brandon Foster. Now it's come full circle, like you mentioned. Brandon is there to support some of your efforts. And I know that's super proud for him to be able to to support anybody, especially somebody that came up as a, as a flaky intern that he molded into a badass sous chef and now a business owner, I think is, is really, really great. These are the kind of stories that I think we need more of in the industry to really understand how important that relationship is. And the fact that, you know, Brandon took an extra second and said, I do see something in you and maybe you're not committed to the level that I'd want you to be, but I think with a little bit of support, and like I always say, a little kick in the ass with that trust and yeah. confidence going both ways. 
I mean, clearly it, it pays dividends. So I love hearing that. Uh, thanks for staying passionate in the industry. Thanks for bringing kimchi and uh, something so important culturally into the, you know, the zeitgeist of, of Denver cuisine. I think it's, it's really valuable. And thanks for talking with us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Best Served Podcast. Subscribe to our show and connect with us on social media at Best Served Podcast. Tune in next week to discover more unsung hospitality heroes.